Hey guys, welcome back to Silicon Street, a podcast where we explore the intersection of finance, technology, and entrepreneurship by providing college students and young professionals with insight into these ever-evolving fields and uncover the secrets to success from distinguished industry leaders. My name is James Barm, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Cutler. If you're new to the podcast, be sure to follow us on Spotify and LinkedIn, as we will be posting each week, and definitely check out our existing platform of over 70 podcasts. Today, we have Cody Kittle as our guest, Portfolio Manager for Elliott Management, where he also serves on numerous company and community boards. Prior to joining Elliott, he worked as a private equity associate at Winpoint Partners and an investment banking analyst at J.P. Morgan. He studied math at Northwestern University. Without further ado, Cody, welcome to the show. How have you been doing? Great, guys. Thanks for having me. Of course. So uh, I guess just to jump right into it, would you mind telling us a little bit more about yourself, kind of walk us through your journey through the finance industry so far? Yeah, sure. So I, um, I I grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, um, which is a you know reasonably finance heavy town. Um, both of my parents worked kind of broadly in the arts world, so you know I think when we moved to Connecticut, uh, my mom thought that people who said they worked at hedge funds were in the landscaping business. So kind of like that that level of removal from. Um, you know, the business world. Uh, And so grew up here, was always sort of around finance, I guess, and um, intrigued by it. I think partially because it wasn't what my parents did. I feel like most of my friends whose parents were in finance were very intrigued by, you know, other other pursuits besides that. So it's kind of funny how that works. Um, And so grew up here uh, where I live now. Um, I, uh, I went to Northwestern for school, was a math major. Um, kind of did the the battery of internships and ended up uh, working at JP Morgan and the investment banking group in Chicago. Um, I did that for a summer internship and then for um, a full-time offer and then uh, went through the, you know, private equity recruiting process and uh, the guys at Winpoint who were also in Chicago, um, they were nice enough to give me an offer to join um, uh, after only a year of banking. And so, Went over there. Um, I did two years there, and then uh, got contacted by a headhunter for Elliot, and started that process, and um, and, and joined here uh, nine years ago. Awesome! That's super helpful. Thanks for thanks for jumping into that. So, um, yeah, like like you've mentioned, you've scored a, a number of incredible jobs at, at highly prestigious firms across Wall Street. And um, so we're kind of thinking about our audience, people trying to break into finance, learn about these finance roles. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about how these processes have gone for you and uh, um, how, how you landed these top jobs and, and any any suggestions you have for us looking forward? Yeah, look, I think um, there's definitely, it's a game, right? And so there, there's a way to play it and a way to be more effective at it. Um, I was relatively clueless uh, going into it. And so in one sense, sort of stumbled my way into various opportunities. But um, I think the, uh, the relative cluelessness is also probably uh, at certain times, like with internships and stuff, probably would have had... I'm very happy with the way it played out, but it would, would have had like more internship offers and would have had a slightly better command of that if I had kind of known some of the tricks. Um, I think, uh, so, so the way I did it was, you know, I think I got lucky with knowing people and having a good resume and kind of having really good mentors, uh, and people that took me on. Um, and, uh, I think that kind of applied up through, um, Winpoint. the Elliott process was very much a, um, there's no way to kind of get in there except to do well in their interview process. Um, it's not like you can call up your uncle or something, uh, and, uh, you know, to get a, get a favor. Um, and so that, but, but up until then it was, you know, I think I got mostly, it was a mix of a good resume and being lucky, but not necessarily being like understanding the tactics of all of it, or at least at times, figuring the tactics out after it was, you know, like, Oh, if I'd known that it probably would have made this part or that part a little easier. Awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's helpful again. So kind of thinking about your time at Winpoint, time at JP Morgan, could you speak a little bit more about 
how how you knew it was time to move on, what that discernment process looked like for you, and and when you when you kind of knew it was time that you wanted to to experience something new and go learn something new at a new place. Well, I think similar to virtually everyone that goes into investment banking, I did not view it as a long term career. I think it was everyone, even you guys, are probably aware of the most people don't want to be career bankers, or at least they don't. Um, the analyst level don't, I think you see it more people coming out of business school and becoming associates. And I think it's pretty widely acknowledged at the investment banks anyways, that the analysts are coming in and it's a churn and burn program. And so there's a, uh, a mutual understanding. So, you know, the time to leave banking is as soon as you can, um, uh, assuming that you are not enormously drawn to a career in investment banking, which if you are great. Um, and so for me, I was always very intrigued by private equity and hedge funds. I think like a lot of college kids, I had read, you know, all the, a lot of the classic books about the financial world. And I was very intrigued just by the prospect of making lots of money. Uh, and so that, um, uh, to getting out of, it wasn't a question for me of like when I wanted to get out of banking. It's, it was just as soon as I could find something interesting. And, um, and so, you know, I think nowadays back then they didn't really start private equity recruiting until March. So if you, you kind of do training in the summer, you hit the floor and uh, I guess September, uh, it's August, September, and then you would be working for six months before you were kind of interviewing um, in some of the more involved processes. And then that that's where it sort of started. Um, as I understand it today, some of the interviews happen, um, you know, in like September or October. So you have uh, uh, banking analysts who b basically haven't even been there for a minute and they're interviewing for their next job, which is a little bizarre. Um, and so I, you know, I think for banking, it's not, it's pretty easy for people to figure out that, that, that they know why they're there. Their bosses know why they're there. And, and so like, I don't think there's a lot of thought that has to go into getting out. It's banking is a really, I think it's a worthwhile trade-off. It's a lot of work, uh, but you learn a lot and you get kind of the people that you're doing it with, with tend to be folks that are interesting to be working alongside. Um, and so, um, now, the Winpoint was a little more interesting um, because so Winpoint's a middle market private equity firm. Um, loved working there; it was an amazing place, um, and uh, like a lot of PE funds, um, the associates, if you wanted to stick around, they would maybe give you a third year offer, or you, you'd go to business school. And if you wanted to have a long term career there, the expectation was that you'd go to business school and maybe come back. And business school for me wasn't you know, uh, wasn't super interesting. Um, and so, uh, I, I just, when I knew that it wasn't going to be the long-term trajectory, um, that made it kind of easy to then start looking around and talking to headhunters and kind of find out what, what, what else is out there. Um, but I think most private equity associates are aware of that sort of two to three year window that they have. And then again, there's sort of a mutual understanding as well that, most of the PE associates are not going to end up partners at whatever fund they're working at. And so therefore like you can, you're sort of expected to look around and because you're expected to look around the headhunters and firms that hire out of those programs are expected to look for you. Yeah, absolutely. I know, I know a lot of that definitely resonates with me and James, especially in, in a large portion of our audience, just kind of having, having finished up our recruiting processes for, for investment banking. And um, it is crazy how early all that stuff starts and, it's crazy to have to think to know like what you want to do for the rest of your life at, at 19, 20 years old. So definitely a great way to, to start your career. And it, it seems like a great place for you to start your career and where you've ended up now at, uh, at Elliot. And um, I guess to kind of, to go off that uh, if, if you wouldn't mind just digging in a little bit more into what Elliot management is, what you guys do and uh, kind of what drew you to the firm initially. Yeah. And actually just to address something you said, which I think is sort of interesting it feels that way for, for you guys, I'm sure, that you have to figure out everything that you want to do in your life kind of all at once. I think the reality is much different, and it's important to recognize, like, there is a, there's sort of a rat race up until a point, and it's a predictable rat race. And you can basically trace it through business school and maybe slightly after business school uh, or, you know, through kind of getting a job after being a private equity associate. The, the path to being a private equity associate is pretty clear. Um, 
And, uh, but what's funny is when you do it all and you get to the other side of it and you look around and see your friends that have gone through that similar, um, similar path, uh, you realize that that's just sort of the opening, you know, it's just the beginning and there's not, there's no, um, it is a path to provide some degree of stability to your life, but you're not going to do that and become the next Henry Kravis or, you know, um, that they, I think the, the path is sold as sort of this, you know, dream, like this way to achieve all these riches and do all these magical things. And like, I will feel so good about myself if I can just be a private equity associate and I'll feel so cool and all this stuff. Or maybe if I can just get into Harvard business school or whatever. Um, but at some point the road ends and it happens pretty quickly, right? Like you do, you know, two years of banking, two years of P maybe you go to business school, maybe you don't, but suddenly you're like mid twenties, 26, 27 or something. And it's like, okay, now I'm at a point where I actually have to figure out what I'm going to do because the rat race doesn't run to 35 or 40. I mean, you can stay on set kind of conveyor belt paths. So if you really want to be a private equity professional forever, like, sure. But you can, if you really want to do that, you can probably figure out some way to get into that at some point through your 20s or early 30s anyways. So like just the idea of getting on this conveyor belt, it like, it kind of drops you off a lot faster than I think people realize. And a lot of, I've seen a lot of it with my friends. Um, you get to a point and, you, and actually, you know, think about this yourself sometimes you're like, okay, cool. Like I got to the end of the visible road for the college student, you know, like what, what the kind of stuff that you guys see. And then you have to figure out what it is that you're actually going to do. Um, uh, and, and like I said, you can, you can, um, the uh, you can live a very comfortable life, pretty good life, doing staying in that path to some degree, right? Like, and that it did, by the way, what I'm saying totally applies to you go work for Goldman and stay Goldman for 20 years, and it would be very similar. But I think a lot of the the magic will get deflated out at some point because you kind of go there, there's just there's no fixed path to some really great magical outcome where everyone just has to follow this list of, you know, rules or ingredients or whatever. Like at some point that gets exhausted and it applies up until the point where, you know, I kept talking about like this mutual understanding of the senior P firm hires you. They know you're not there forever. The bank hires you. They know you're not there forever. Um, There's not a lot of places that will hire you and give you sort of the guarantee that you can be there forever unless you're like really good at performing. So at some point you you get off the, the conveyor belt and it really becomes about you and what you're good at. And, um, uh, and I think a lot of times people get to the end of that path and they go, Oh wait, I want to do something different. And then they end up sort of starting at the beginning again, albeit with probably much more optionality and maybe a little more financial security um, than they would if they had gone down, you know, alternative conveyor belt paths. But it's just, I, I guess the short thing I should say is I don't think you have to decide your entire career by like with some of these choices. You actually are just deciding for like a reasonably small window. People that commit to joining the Navy are probably making a longer term commitment. If it's a, I don't know what it is, it's like four or six years or something, then you are uh, by like signing up for this path to be like, you know, trying to get a PE job when you're two months out of school or whatever. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, coming from a, sorry, you from, asked me, you, oh yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say coming from kind of non, a non-finance background um, and, and kind of figuring out that finance was probably the right route for me in college. It's definitely been funny to see kind of how, how people do view that path as, they come into college thinking, oh, I want to do that investment banking for two years. Then I want to do private equity, then go to then go to to business school and then private equity after that. And it is kind of funny how there is that conveyor belt and how a lot of a lot of younger people feel like they're they're gonna be stuck on that. But it's it's great to hear that that's not not always the case and um that there is a lot of optionality. Um and you don't have to have, have your life figured out as as a college. Well, at student. some point you'll realize that it's not actually as great as it seems. Yeah. So like I think being a private equity associate is a really cool job. There are very few jobs that are as cool as that for someone that age, right? If you're 23 or 24 and you get to go to board meetings and you're hanging out with these, you don't own the businesses, but you're kind of around the people that sort of own the businesses. Um, and you're getting to just see a lot of stuff and get, uh, have a lot of responsibility and being involved, you know, it always feels kind of cool to be involved in big deals and all kinds of stuff. And, um, and you, you, there's a much more, uh, 
there's a tangible feeling to what you're doing. Banking, you feel very removed. All you do in banking is you make PowerPoint slides and you make Excel models that you then output to PowerPoint slides. So you're like a professional PowerPoint person. Um, and I'm sure that someone is working on a way to make like ChatGPT able to replace an analyst for that. Um, but it's not the most exhilarating thing, but you learn some stuff. Um, PE associate as a young person is really great. As a you know, um, uh, doing like the private equity path, if you are post MBA is a different proposition. It's you're older, you have much more capabilities. So you can probably do a much wider range of things. You've learned a decent amount. And you're kind of looking at this reasonably steep hill that you have to climb up in the hopes that you too can like make it to a partner level or whatever, where, um, like all the rewards are, but it's a different, and especially the folks that are usually figuring out, you know, their, PE offer two or three years in advance at some fancy fund, like they, I think, get to that point where it's like, okay, cool, just do, you know, do the middle manager grunt work for the next, um, uh, you know, eight years, and then maybe something good will happen. And they go, oh, wait, I don't know if I want to do that. Um, and uh, again, not to say that like those aren't really amazing jobs, people, but, but I just, I've, this is more an observation about my friends who I've seen go through this. They hit a point where they are suddenly thinking, this is not moving at the pace I want it to, or this isn't what I want my whole life to be about. And then they're kind of back to that, you know, all right, well, what do I want to do? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So I, I guess like to, to kind of build off that, then like what, what uh, brought you off the conveyor belt? What drew you to, to Elliott uh, management? And uh, maybe if you don't mind just like digging in a little deeper into a quick overview of what Elliott is and, and, and what you guys do. Yeah. Well, I think to be fair, I'm still on the conveyor belt. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm probably, I've gone longer um, than, you know, some of my peers maybe, um, which is also funny because I'm still very young. So it's just like, I feel tired of it in some ways. And um, uh, it's not like I'm, you know, I'm not in my forties. Um, and so uh, what Elliot is a, you know, um, it's a really large multi-strategy hedge fund manages more than $50 billion. Um, it's been around for 45 plus years, uh, founded by Paul Singer. Um, it is a, uh, I think it's a very unique firm. Um, if you kind of spent time Googling it or Wikipedia, like going on Wikipedia or something, you'd see that some of the trades that we've been involved with are different than, um, kind of your, if your standard hedge fund is like buying some stocks and being short some other stocks and having, you know, people focused on maybe certain industry verticals or something like, I think Elliot feels when you're there a lot more like a big investment partnership. Uh, there's a wide range of things we can work on. It's not just the things that the firm does, but that the individuals there um, uh, can, can do. I, I'm a PM on the situational investing team. So, you know, broadly speaking, Anything that isn't real estate, uh, structured products, or commodities falls into our group. And so that could be public, private, debt, equity, um, early stage stuff, distressed stuff. It really, it's much more of a, um, uh, there's underpinnings in terms of investment philosophy and what we look for. But I think a lot of the traditional siloing or, or structuring of other funds is it's, it's different at Elliott. Um, and, uh, and so that, that flexibility and, and the kind of philosophical underpinning of the firm is what has kept me, you know, on the conveyor belt. Um, it's been a great place to build a career and I really like what I do day to day. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it's a little bit of that's background on that. Yeah, that's perfect. So you talked about how within the group, you've got a lot of optionality with what you're investing in, what you're considering, um, as far as like debt and equities, could you speak a little bit about like just generally what makes a good good investment from from your perspective, and then kind of dive in a little bit for comparing a, a good debt investment versus a good equity investment? Let me maybe just touch on before we move off the recruiting stuff, just a few things of um, what I the advice that I give to people when they when I talk to them, Perfect. and yeah. some of the takeaways from um, interviewing lots of being involved in the recruiting for you know. Um, not just my own team, but in the roles that I've been involved in the past, um, and actually, you know, executives and things like that when we hire for our companies. So, um, 
I think when you think about recruiting, the the most important element for any candidate is to really own their story. When I say that, what I mean is everyone's got their own circumstances, right? Like, and when you go into the interview, you have to remember that whoever's interviewing you or when your resume goes in the pile, they're looking at hundreds of resumes just like yours and they're having hundreds of conversations that if you you know if you do all the right stuff and you do the off off wall street or whatever the new things are that give people the guides or give people the questions and you're very rehearsed and have sort of standard answers you really won't stand out at all it's sometimes i interview kids and it's you know it's like oh tell me about yourself and they go into this same kind of setup well here's this like quirky reason why i got into finance and um uh one or two cool things that they're doing and then right into like why they want to be, why they've always wanted to be an investment banker forever, something like that. And, um, I think what's much more interesting is when people tailor the story that they tell or when they tailor the story, they tell to the specifics of what, uh, you have to guess at this, but it's usually not that hard of, of what, uh, what they think I'm seeing when I look at their resume. So let me be specific about this. Um, and actually let me first say when I, if you go to Harvard and you have a four O and you have perfect SAT scores and you've, you know, interned at a bunch of cool places, um, like you're already set, right? You can do the generic answers and you're good to go. Most people don't have that. They're, most people don't go to Harvard. Most people don't have everything perfect. And so, and you're always trying to navigate some, let's like call it a challenge or some, something that is short of perfection, right? If everyone is short of perfection, like you have to navigate where your areas are that are short of perfection. Um, and it, it, it's not that you have to be perfect coming into it. It's just, that's the stuff that, um, that really matters for like your story. So, if you have a three, five GPA, that's like usually right off the bat GPA and SAT scores, whether, you know, it's fair or not, like that's what people are going to use as an instant screener for things. So if you have a lower GPA, you need to quickly get on top of that from a story standpoint. So that's like, okay, well, my freshman year GPA is bad, but my junior year one is good. Put your junior year on there or my major GPA is really good or I'm an industrial engineer or whatever. I said in the beginning that this whole thing is a game. I always encourage college kids to not take interesting classes, but take classes where they can get good grades because your GPA is going to stick with you for a very long time. And if you want to learn about interesting subject matter, that's great, but get a book and read it on your own time or audit a class or whatever. Just recognize, like, I'm not saying how the system should be. I'm just saying how it is. It's not helpful for someone's career if they have a bad grade in a class that they really enjoyed. You just want to play the game and get good grades. Um, Back to the story side of it, I think it is, um, sorry, there's a few other things that I, I just see people get wrong. Um, one is like, you know, I'm the treasurer of some random club or I'm the treasurer of the investment club or I'm in the investment banking society or whatever. Okay, fine. Like that's, that. those groups are probably okay for learning about getting into whatever field you meet other people, they'll give you advice. You can build a network and the networking part of this is really important, but that is not impressive or it's not going to make someone say like, Oh, I want to hire you where people really get, get it confused. And I think there's a lot of anxiousness among college kids. So you'll have a college kid who's interning at Goldman Sachs as a sophomore or whatever. And it's like their friends go, Oh, you know, I interned at Goldman when I was a sophomore and you, you, it's, you think like, oh, I'm at Goldman. Now I'm set. I've checked that box. But when you're on the other side of it and you're looking at resumes, if I see a bunch of really fancy internships, I basically just assume that the kid's parents are really well connected uh, or something like that. And I'm certainly not going, oh, they must have obtained such interesting knowledge working there that they're going to be a huge asset to me Like if I hire them. Um, maybe to, to get to like a key point. Getting the story right means you're getting the signals right. The whole interview process and resume process is you get the chance to send a handful of signals to the person, and the signals are about your character and your intelligence. And what you want to do is curate those signals so that you're getting it exactly right. And if you think about what do people care about, intelligence is its own thing. And there's, you know, like most of the people that are listening to this are probably going to come off reasonably smart. So let's just assume that that's sort of taken care of. Um, 
and then you're really talking about character because the difference between someone who is going to get hired and not almost always is it's like, Oh yeah, they both have good resumes, but I really liked that guy or that, that girl. And so why is it that they really liked them? Usually it's they exhibit a really high degree of grit, uh, the ability to um, kind of be a self-starter, take things on, run with something. You have, you have confidence that if they join, they're going to be able to do it. Um, you know, whether it's like it's been bank in the context of banking, it's just going to be a lot of work or in private equity, they'll be able to maybe, you know, rise to the occasion and, and not, not kind of be annoying. Like the, the, a good employee is someone who makes their boss's job easier. And so um, when you think about the, the, I know this is kind of a long winded answer. Um, but when you think about setting up the story in the resume, like having fancy internships on your resume is one thing, but if I am interviewing someone and they worked in a construction job, their freshman year, I'm way more impressed by that. Cause if the kid says to me, you know, I know what it's like to do back breaking labor every day and to work in a job where you shower at the end of the day, instead of the beginning, like I, I can deal with hard stuff. Like that is something you can take seriously, right? It's a lot different than like, Oh, I, you know, played around in some random spreadsheets and like, uh, you know, in the, in some heavily air conditioned financial office. And so, um, I think, uh, and, and, and also if you think about it, every, pretty much every, um, resume that comes across, like people have figured out that, Oh, it's good to have some financial thing on your resume. So there's, everyone's got a financial thing on their resume. So it's like, you, whether you worked at this private wealth management firm or this insurance broker or whatever, it's like, cool. I get that you landed that internship. You're not going to stand out. If you're like, yeah, I went, um, I, I'm really into microeconomics. As you see, I'm an econ major. And last summer I, um, you know, went and got a job at McDonald's flipping burgers, working minimum wage, because I was really interested to see what that would be like. And it related directly to some of the things that, you know, I'm studying in depth with my professor about, I don't know, wage rates or whatever. Um, like, and I learned more doing that than anything I possibly could have. It's like, that is going to stand out. It's going to be, wow, like, that's really interesting. Or working in a landscaping business or kind of think like real things where you actually learn stuff. Um, and, and again, going back to the character point, if you're solving, if you're trying to signal really interesting elements about your character and elements that people probably are looking for, there are much more effective ways to do it than doing what everyone else is doing where you won't actually get kind of a differentiated signal Now you still probably want to have at least one finance internship at some point. Um, but there's lots of ways to do that too. Um, so, I think, uh, let me just think about this. The, um, uh, oh, one other thing I mentioned the networking. So having hustle, I think there's a, I remember being under this illusion myself. I'm not sure if it's a common one, but when you're in college, um, there's this idea that, you know, everyone's sort of on the same footing, right? Like you're in the class, everyone gets taught by the teacher. It's the same information. We all have the same textbook. You everyone goes home and study and it's a meritocracy, like the person who did it the best gets the best grade. But in, in recruiting and in the real world, it's not that everyone isn't in the same box with the same information. There are some people that are going to like, there is a reward for pushing yourself well outside of that box. So if you sit around and say, Hey, if I just do the things that I'm supposed to do, I'm going to get a good grade. Like if I do the things I'm supposed to do, I'm going to get a good job or whatever. That's not the case. You have to go out in a good way to divide what I'm saying is if you're passive about it. So if you passively do everything you think you're supposed to do and you think that, you know, the world is just going to reward you for that, like it might, but you're much more likely, you have much better odds if you're not passive and you're actively out there pursuing what you want. And so there are, I get emails from, um, kids all the time. Uh, you know, they get access to a Bloomberg. Bloomberg has email addresses for basically everybody. Like they pull the emails, they start reaching out to people and you can reach kind of far and wide. Most people actually want, enjoy helping folks. Sometimes I get an email from someone and I miss it. Okay. I'm busy. So I say, I'm going to respond to it. And then I forget. But then there are some kids out there that will email a second time and a third time and a fourth time. And they're not annoying about it either. 
hey, I'm so sorry to bother you. You know, what you do is really interests me. Like, I would love to hear about it, even for five minutes, you know, and I totally understand if you're not available. Like, that kind of thing, you don't do yourself any disservice by sending that. If you can draw some connection, hey, you're a Notre Dame alumni, you know, whatever. You, I, I saw this random thing that we can draw, draw some connection to. At some point, you'll either just get a hard no from them where they say, hey, no. But I guarantee you they'll still respect the hustle, but most people will actually want to help you. Um, and so there's this, like, again, when you go into an interview, if you think about the signals, especially investment banking, but it's not just that, hey, why do you want to work here? Like, why do you want to do this? Well, uh, it's one thing to say, like, I read Barbarians at the Gate and I want to work as a private equity associate and I'm trying to make money or whatever. Like, sure, that's what everybody thinks it feels. So you're not going to get, most people don't say that, but they're going to give the whatever the accepted generic answer is. But if you go in and you're like, well, yeah, you know, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do this. And then I called 30 people that work as investment banking analysts and I spoke to all of them and I really have a good understanding of what it is. And my understanding is that it's X and Y and this is what, and, and that really appeals to me for these reasons. That's why I want to do it. You're stating something factual, which is I want to do this job, but you're sending a signal underlying that of I'm the kind of person that when I'm curious about something, I do deep work. I go way harder than anyone else in figuring it out. And I'm sitting here in front of you as a really well-informed person. And the read through to somebody is going to be, whoa, if I hire this person and I ask them to do something, they're probably, when they tell me the answer, they probably have gone way deeper than anyone else to get that answer. Um, so I think, uh, you know, I've covered networking, covered um, the jobs that people have leading up to careers. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Uh, I, oh, I think also just authenticity, like with, to that story point, if you can kind of, again, it's okay, like any gaps to perfection are okay, but it's best to wrap them in, in um, wrap them in a story that signals some positive character attribute. Uh, people love underdogs. People love, love it when, you know, Hey, I was screwing something up and then I figured out I was screwing it up and I got real. But once I got real, the results were amazing. You know, that kind of thing. Um, let me pause there. Cause I know we've been talking for a while. I, I don't know if there's anything you want me to expand on or, uh, anything else to discuss on the subject. I think recruiting wise that that's pretty good. Um, I guess. Something that would be oh, let me say one more thing. Read, read books. Books is a really good, there are certain, um, uh, it, oh, it's, first of all, it's an excellent way like to bond with someone. If you're talking to them, um, it's, there's not a lot of things you're going to have in common with interviewing someone who's 10 or if someone interviewing you is 10 or 20 years older. But if you're reading the kind of books that a particular type of person is reading and you can enjoy them and talk about them. Like people get a lot of, you're not going to go in and be like, Hey, do you love the new top gun? Right? Like that would be nice if you could, cause you could maybe bond over that. But if you can bond on an intellectual level, um, over, uh, you know, whether I, I like reading nonfiction, I don't think you're likely to go in and talk about 50 shades of gray or something with someone. But, um, uh, there, there are certain books that I think are, and I actually think in college, most of the stuff you're going to really learn is not stuff that your professors teach you. Uh, it's going to be things that you self learn. And, and again, the underlying signal, if you're talking about books is you're intellectually curious and you like to read, uh, maybe we can, we can leave that, that subject there and go back to investing. Awesome. Yeah, I guess I guess to jump, into that one question I had earlier, could you speak real quick just over your, this time that you spend in investment banking and then in private equity now, now at a at a fund? Um, could you speak a little bit about what what does make a good investment and then differentiate that between debt and equity? I think that'd be super interesting to hear. Yeah, so and these are just my own views, um, but I think about um, I sort of separate the world of investments between things that are um, momentum trades and things that are uh, sort of fundamental, you know, um, investments or trades. Uh, and what I mean by that is um, it's, it's not uncommon throughout history to be able to buy something for some amount of money and sell it for more uh, without, you know, or to do, be able to do that um, without having any of the fundamentals right, right? Like you can go and uh, the 
things can go up a lot. You know, it's, it's very generic. It's like things can go up a lot in value, um, and, or a lot, sorry, a lot in price, um, from external factors that maybe you don't have any control over. Maybe you don't have any special insights into, and you can, there's a lot of luck out there. And so, um, one thing that I always think about is what is driving the return that you're generating or that you hope to generate and how much of it is a, one of these outside factors, um, and how much of it is something that you have a very specific angle or insight into, um, to be more specific, like, I mean, you could take a really easy thing like Bitcoin or something where there's no, um, it, you know, all the pricing of that is basically driven by non-fundamental things. I mean, you know, maybe if you had some view that some policy change or whatever was going to uh, flow into the pricing in some short time period, but I feel like a lot of the people that are creating that stuff are really just kind of riding the ups and downs and it's like playing roulette. Uh, but you could take a different example, which is buying, um, I don't know, stock in any of the SPACs that like these high flying tech exciting stories, uh, from a few years ago, uh, people were largely, I think getting into those and making money just by, you know, they were making money up until the point where they, they weren't, but, um, just because there was kind of this exciting momentum around it. And like everything I'm saying basically gets to the point of, if you make money on a trade, does that mean you're a good investor? Um, and like, I think I'm kind of leading the witness there, but I, I don't think so. And the way I would define good investor is if would you would like, if they came to you and said, Hey, look at this thing that I just did, or look at these series of things that I just did. Do you want to give me money to invest in your behalf? And, um, uh, I think there's just a lot of investments and investors and investing firms that, um, primarily make money by being in some sort of momentum trade, whether they know it or not you can make a really interesting argument around a lot of private equity firms that basically made money because multiples have expanded continuously because interest rates have continuously fallen and those things are related. Um, and, uh, uh, so you can pick lots of things like that. Um, and so now that's not to say that if you lose money on investment that you're like, you've got an easy argument to be a good investor, right? Um, there, like, you can argue that it gets harder in some cases, but presumably if someone, you know, if you gave me the ability to bet on a coin flip uh, and had higher than 50-50 odds for me, like, that's a good that's a good bet. You should take that, but it doesn't mean you're guaranteed to win. Um, and so if you lose that bet, it doesn't mean that you necessarily were wrong up front on coming into that. So just, you know, broad strokes, I kind of group, I start by grouping investments into those categories of like, is there something different that we're going to do here? Or are we kind of doing the same thing that everyone else is doing? Or are we relying on some kind of broader thing that's happening to, uh, to really make a differentiated return? I think where that stands out is, um, all the time you hear like, give me a stock pitch. And someone will say, Oh, well, you know, this company, I project their earnings to grow at 5% and they trade at this multiple. And so if they grow at that, that rate and you apply that new EPS to this multiple, like, um, stock should go up and it's like, okay. Uh, but everything you just said is kind of already known, right? There's nothing different about that. And so like the very well may be true that if you buy that, you may make money, um, but it feels sort of like an underwhelming thesis um, and an underwhelming rationale uh, so that even if you did make money doing that, it's not like I would feel great about giving you money to manage to continuously make money. Um, so with uh, just getting back to your specific question, I then think, okay, well, where can you actually make money in sort of a differentiated way? And I look for um, structural reasons why there's some sort of inefficiency that exists. Because um, again, if like markets were truly efficient in every which way, then you're not um, uh, you're not actually um, you're kind of just getting different levels of of beta when you are you know, depending on whatever market model you'd subscribe to, like it's kind of hard to earn differentiated returns, but markets aren't perfectly efficient and there's all kinds of dynamics to play into that. And so looking for structural inefficiencies is one way. Um, 
looking for things that you have control over or that you have some sort of angle on um, that is different from um, what other people can do. So like just broadly speaking, the activist strategy is a good one for that, where you buy something um, and the pricing expectations or whatever is driving the price, it doesn't incorporate some sort of set of changes that are going to be implemented. Um, I think process driven things like in bankruptcies and restructurings, uh, litigation, those are situations where first of all, just navigating the process, there's like some payment associated with that. Because if, if I own debt in a business and I'm going to sell it, um, because it's, it's filing and I don't want to deal with it. Well, you have to kind of pay someone to want to deal with it. So it's going to trade at some sort of discount. Um, to whatever ultimate value you know will be collected doesn't mean it's necessarily at a big discount because if there's a lot more a lot of money chasing very few opportunities maybe that trades at a very tight discount and it's a discount to an unknown number but at least there's a process around that and there's enough uncertainty um, that the buyer has a has a theory or a way to generate a return that's sort of differentiated so I think a lot about catalysts uh, angles structural inefficiencies. Um, and that's this type of investing that I focus on. Um, uh, and not just, you know, like, I think that's kind of, maybe it's, I've adopted it fully, but not just from a work standpoint, but if I was going to approach any investing, it's, it's kind of separating those two worlds and then finding something that is, you know, structurally different that allows you to actually like kind of know that, um, you know, like generically what people would call like alpha or whatever. Uh, but um, that's what I look for uh, in an investment. Absolutely. That, that makes a ton of sense and certainly a very, very interesting way to think about it. And um, I was just hoping if you could expand, I know you mentioned briefly um, uh, activist investing as a strategy. And I know Elliot, Elliot is known specifically for being an activist investor. Um, they've been in the news recently with their bid for, for Manchester United. Um, it's gotten some press and I was wondering if you could expand a little more on what an activist investor is and uh, maybe how an activist can go about creating value in the firms that they invest in. Yeah, I think just speaking high level, like I don't want to get into anything related to Elliot specifically, but um, just, you know, maybe, uh, maybe this is not a great analogy, but if you have a, a rental property, right. And like it rents at a certain rate and, um, and the house is the way it is. Um, and someone comes along and says, Oh, actually, I think this could get a much better rent rate. Uh, if you changed these things about the property, like that's sort of the core idea, right? You're just going in and saying, Hey, there's some status quo. The status quo has some value associated with it. And we think that if you made changes as it relates to the status quo, uh, like those will drive value. Um, and so that's just the core of like, I think any activist firm, they're just, they're focused on that spread between what it is and what it can be. Um, and uh, there's a process element to trying to implement that, um, which I don't really want to get too into just because it's kind of relates like probably a little um, too close to the, the specifics of what we do. Um, but uh, at a high level, it's, it's about cattle being your own catalyst. You will often hear passive equity investors talk about, upcoming catalysts. They think that, you know, they want to own a certain stock because they think a company is about to initiate a cost cutting program or do a spin or do a buyback, um, do, a uh, I don't know, something that is they're excited about. And the only difference between that sort of passive equity investing where you're buying, hoping that that happens and an activist investing is you're investing, uh, with the intention of trying to make that thing happen. Um, and then it's just, there's sort of a process, uh, there's different ways you can approach it, but there's, um, the, the, the goal as a shareholder is to try to, you know, implement, get those changes accepted or some amount of them. And that those are the catalysts for a repricing and whatever you're doing. Yeah, absolutely not. Really appreciate expanding on that. Um, I was, I was curious, I know, um, probably some, some of the audience were curious to hear a little bit more about what activist was. So. Thank you for that. And I guess just like one last broad question we have for you um, is, you know, working on Wall Street, being in these positions that are defined by meritocracy and um, the way to to exceed in the industry is um, through through, you know, working harder 
um, than, than others around you. And just wondering, working in this environment, being in it, how are you able to balance your personal priorities uh, with, with this kind of maybe cutthroat environment um, that is Wall Street? Yeah, well, it's funny. I'm not sure the the premise I would fully take. Uh, so, I don't think of Wall Street as actually a very cutthroat environment because it's a there's a huge portion of it is relationship driven. I mean, when we talk about Wall Street, people are referring to like the banks on Wall Street. Those are service businesses, and service businesses are you know kind of need to be sort of friendly. Um, uh, and and I generally find that people who work in finance are like nice people, like good. You know, you could trust them. And, um, uh, and so, uh, I I obviously get the, like the, 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 um, external impression of it, but it's actually sort of interesting. Like even at Elliot, most people I work with are just really nice kind of, there's, it's not like a bunch of swagger, aggressive people. Um, and so, uh, um, I also think the premise that like it's kind of this endless like you just have to work so hard. There was uh, the guy that ran Winpoint when I was there. He had this line that he would say is like you can you if someone said oh you know we've we've put a lot of time into this or we're like working really hard on this deal and he'd be like well you can spend a lot of time running a hot dog stand like so what um, and I think especially as you advance like as an investment banking analyst there is a bigger premium on just working really hard. Like you're just going to sit there and grind it out and you're not going to ask to leave early to go to your friend's birthday drinks or whatever. Um, and I think there's a line that I've heard, um, or when, when I was in banking, people would say, this is like, you have social life, um, uh, work life and sleep, and you can pick two of the three. And, um, and so, and I think they're maybe gotten a little softer on some of this stuff, but, uh, so as a younger person, like being a workhorse is great, but at some point it's not actually about the amount of time you spend. It's about working effectively. Um, it's not a good thing. If I have to work, you know, 18 hours a day, like I'm doing something wrong. Um, and, uh, uh, it's about, figuring out where your time can be really well spent and, and where you can have such a high degree of effectiveness that it's not necessarily like an extra hour here or there isn't moving the needle. Now, sometimes, especially if you're dealing with like, say a private deal process, like there are timelines in order to hit the timeline, you have to, you know, just get the work done. Um, but more, I think more often the case is that it's, you know, you have kind of lots of time and it's about like figuring out how to filter what you're focusing on to very specific things that move the needle. Um, and so I think the, this will get to the answer to your question. I think that if you are okay at what you're doing, it doesn't come at a great personal expense. It probably is, uh, like I don't view what I do for work as, um, uh, is having sort of inter- any interference in my personal life or family life. Um, I mean, my wife would probably tell you that like, well, you know, you're always on the phone on the weekend or whatever. Um, which sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. Uh, but, um, if you like what you're doing, then it kind of doesn't, you're, it, it, it quickly loses that grind state of mind that you're in when you're kind of just out of school and it's like, Oh man, like that sucks. You are working all the time and there's no way around it. Um, but as you advance in your career, like if you find yourself in a position like that, you probably should think of a new, uh, unless you really enjoy that. Um, cause you'll just burn out too. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I, I think it, it it's just work figuring out how to work very effectively. Awesome. Yeah, that's, that's super helpful. Kind of, Kind of nice to hear from our perspective as we, um, right before we jump on that on that conveyor belt and head to Wall Street here pretty soon. So I guess now that wraps up kind of our, our general questions. Now brings us to our rapid fire section, which is just five real quick, real quick questions and kind of um, just fifteen second answers or whatever whatever you're comfortable with, just real quick. So question one is uh, if you could just give us your favorite book, Capitalism and Freedom by Milton Friedman. Awesome. Um, but I will give a shout out to Knowledge and Decisions by Thomas Sowell, uh, The Conservative Sensibility by George Will, 
And uh, I think a recent book, the book's not particularly great, but the ideas in it are really interesting. And I would recommend every college kid reads it is Die With Zero by Bill Perkins. Uh, or you could, he did a podcast interview that's really good. Um, I don't know. I can't remember which podcast, but uh, those those books, every college kid should read those books. Awesome. Um, if you could travel anywhere in the world, where would you go? Uh, I mean, I feel like I can travel anywhere in the world and I'm trying to think where I, uh, uh, on my short list to do is a safari. Um, and I've always wanted to go to, uh, Iran at some point, which is probably less easy to go to. Oh, got it. Um, if you could take any class retake any class in college, which class would you retake? Um, I was a math major and I really liked, uh, I really liked linear algebra. I really liked, uh, I did this sequence probability and stochastic processes. I would probably redo either of those cause I've found my notes from college. And when I look at them, it looks like hieroglyphics and it would be fun to be able to, although what I really would like is to be able to study neural networks, the stuff that underpins these AI models. If I were a college kid, I would not waste time with a career in Wall Street. I would, or if you wanted a career in Wall Street, I would spend all your time fi- trying to figure out how to make some sort of chat GPT related business or service. And um, you could, that will give you something really interesting to talk about in your interviews. That stuff is so fascinating. And um, people like me, it's, I don't have enough time to learn it now. And like most everyone over the age of 20 doesn't really, or 30 or whatever, doesn't doesn't have the time. It's a huge advantage that college kids have. You can sit in your dorm room and figure it out. So I would, I would take one of those classes that they didn't exist when I was in, uh, um, in college. Cool. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite hobby outside of work? I love, uh, tennis and kiteboarding. Awesome. Cool. Well, that, that, wraps up the podcast thank you so much for coming on cody this was super helpful and and also very interesting to hear your takes on on some of that recruiting stuff that we're we're all kind of having the back of our heads at all times so thank you so much for that and uh yeah it was, it was great talking to you cool yeah this is fun uh thanks guys all right everyone that wraps up our conversation with cody kittle of elliott management we hope you enjoyed our conversation on Cody's career path and found some of his advice helpful as you look to discern your career path and pursue new opportunities. If you would like to learn more about investing and, and being your own catalyst, I would encourage you to check out a couple of our past episodes. First, I would recommend listening to our episode entitled Investing from an Operational Perspective with Richard Dresdale of Jefferson River Capital. I would also steer you towards an episode entitled Opportunistic Investing at Sixth Street Partners with Brian DRC, who is a partner at Sixth Street. These podcasts are great resources for all of you trying to pursue careers in business, whether you're looking to learn more about a specific industry or just hear the stories and advice of leading professionals in these roles. As always, if you have any guests or topics that you would like for us to cover in the future, please feel free to reach out to us on our website. With that, thank you guys so much for listening, and we will see you next episode.